Um, Father, Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for today, Father. I thank you for this opportunity given. Father, I pray for I pray for myself and I pray for the congregation, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, Lord, that you would continue to enlighten the eyes of our heart, Father, Lord, that we be able to understand the word that is received today, Father, Lord, that you would fill us with spiritual wisdom in the knowledge and revelation of Christ Jesus, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word, Lord. I pray that you would give us fertile hearts, Father, Lord, hearts of flesh, hearts that are responsive to your gospel. And I just give you praise. I pray that you use me as the vessel as I am. Use me as the vessel, Father, to speak your word. And I just give you praise and I just thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah. Um, I just want to thank the Lord for this opportunity to teach. Um, I taught on Wednesday. Um, We went through the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, for the people that weren't there. Um, We were talking about salvation about how we've been offered this great salvation and at times as Christians we can drift away from it and my plea was the same plea that the author of Hebrews was writing to the Jewish Christians at the time. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't drift away from it. So for the people that were here on Wednesday, you might hear fragments of the Wednesday's teaching and today's teaching um, towards the end and the middle. But like what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, it's no trouble for me to say the same things to you again, but for you it is for your safeguard. So, you know me, um, there's no introduction, so we're going to jump straight into it. So, um, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. For the people that put their hand up and received their Bible from Naomi, it's probably the New King James James Version. I'm going to read all my texts from the ESV because I just like the way it reads. So, if you want to follow me step by step, the scriptures that are going to appear on the screen behind me is going to be written in the ESV. So, you look ready? No? Yeah? Okay. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, picking up in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we'll stop there. So, the problem in the universe from the economy to disease to social issues to crime lays within sin. Um, The problem is a sin issue. All of us are fractured. All of us are alienated from our creator, sorry. All of us are lawbreakers. Um, In Colossians 1.21, scripture clearly states that we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Looking at society today and the history of society, we can definitely say there's something wrong with humanity. Christian or not, religious or secular, we can definitely come together and say there's something wrong with the human race. Now, people don't initially want to hit the nail on the head. They will blame the issues of society on other things other than sin. So we'll blame it on a lack of education or... Sorry, this keeps on moving about. Um, a lack of education or a lack of medical care or a lack of open-minded people or the fact that religion has enslaved people or better yet, caused people to isolate themselves from the rest of society. On and on I can go giving you some type of human theory or conclusion on why mankind thinks humanity is in the state that it is. We've had great advancements in education, medical care, 
but humans are still fractured. We've had countries and states abolish open-air religion and create secular states, but that hasn't solved the problem. Wherever you go, be it country, state, island, monastery, mosque, the church, your home, if humans are involved, expect it to be jacked up, meaning expect there to be problems. Why? Because the problem with humanity is not a, it's not a um, external one. It's not an issue to do with your mindset or your upbringing in which a therapist or what the Americans say, a, a shrink and such could fix you up or reformat you to be quote-unquote normal like the rest of mankind. As Christians, we should know and understand that the issue is sin. Sin is the issue. And that being said, if that's the case, we could all agree that everyone is guilty because everyone is a sinner. Everyone's lied. Everyone's stolen something despite its value. Everyone's made someone or something the most ultimate thing in their life other than God. Now, God is a just judge, but he's also a adopting loving father. Um, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, a mature Christian understands the robustness of the gospel, understanding that God is both these things. So, he's a just judge, but he's a loving father. He does have wrath stored up, but he's also slow to anger. He is a good God, meaning he must punish what is bad and evil, but he's also rich in grace and mercy. And that's what I want to focus on today, his grace and his mercy. Reason being, if you fail to understand his grace and mercy, you rob him of worship and you rob yourselves of walking in that joy that you're supposed to be walking in. So to really understand the attributes, these attributes, his grace and mercy, to really grasp these characteristics of God, you need to understand the cross. And to understand the cross, you need to understand the nature or the essence of man. I'll explain. We'll pick it up again in Ephesians 2. I want, there's certain words that I want you to, to see. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Nature. So listen, sin is not, sin is not the concept, sin is just not the concept of doing something wrong. Sin is the nature of a human being. As humans, no, furthermore, as Christians, we don't ever feel the weight of our sin. We know it's there, but it doesn't tend to bother us. Why? Because as Christians and as humans, we we love to walk in this misunderstanding of the idea of goodness. What I'm trying to say is that, in essence, everybody thinks they're a good person. Everybody at some point in their life will turn around and say, yo, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm good. But you need to understand that human goodness is really subjective, just like intelligence, just like beauty, just like strength. And so I'll give you an example. If I'm gonna I'm not gonna make you come out, don't 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 worry. But if Peter Ayo and Hugo would just stand up for a minute so the whole congregation can see who you are. Don't worry, I ain't gonna embarrass you. Just 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 stand up. That's Hugo, that's Ayo, that's Peter. Thanks guys, you lots can sit down. So, imagine this. Um, there's a group of secondary school kids, let's say year 7 and year 8, and they're at the local gym 
they're at their PE lesson learning about phys- physical fitness. And it's a Monday. And for those that don't go to the gym, Monday is known as International Chest Day. Everybody works their chest on a Monday. So <laughs> I'm telling you. So Hugo goes to the gym early in the morning and he sees that the bench press is free. And he's like, cool, chest. Jumps on the bench press. Throws on a couple of plates, let's call it 60 kg plus the bar, 80 kg, that's quite heavy. Starts pushing that. All the school kids are looking at you going like, right, this French guy is kind of strong, you know. Okay. And then Ayo walks in a few minutes later, he sees his boy Hugo, he's like, what, Hugo, working chest today, yeah? All right, let me jump in your set. And Ayo's taller, Ayo's bigger, Ayo's Nigerian, so things are different. <laughs> so, he joins Hugo. And he throws on a couple more plates, so let's call it 120 kg. And he starts pushing that with ease. Now, the school kids ain't looking at Hugo no more. Hugo's irrelevant, they're looking at Ayo because Ayo's the biggest, he's the strongest in the gym. You know what I mean? No disrespect to Hugo. <laughs> Ayo's the biggest, he's the strongest in the gym. And then lo and behold, Peter comes in. Peter's 6'4", he's heavy on top, heavy, heavy at the bottom, well, he's getting there, a few more squats. No, I'm saying. And he comes in. Now, before he even reaches the bench press, everyone's looking at him because, whoa, you know, his shirt is struggling to breathe. <laughs> so he comes in. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't even want to join in with Hugo and, and Ayo. He just comes up to them and goes, when are you man finished? So they jump off, Hugo, and then Peter jumps in, and he throws in a couple plates. Let's call it 180 kg. I don't even know if you can push that, but let's call it 180 kg. And he starts pushing it. Now what happens? All the school kids are looking at Peter because he's the biggest, he's the strongest in the gym. And the point that I want to get across to you is that if you really want to compare yourself, if you really want to compare yourself to, to, to see how good you are, you have to compare yourself to someone of perfection or what the Bible would call holy. So, follow me. Um... So, of course, around the sinful universe, of course you're going, to find, you're going to find someone else that you're better than. Of course you're going to look at your neighbor and, and, and you're going to find someone that you're better than. You're, you're going to look at a, a celebrity or look at an infamous criminal or a Hitler and such and, and compare yourself by that standard to, to convince yourself that you're good. So you look at your neighbor and, you know, my neighbor doesn't recycle, I, I recycle. I know, save the planet. My neighbor... When he's going to the corner shop, he takes his 4x4, polluting the atmosphere. I ride to work. No CO2 emissions. Saving the planet. But as I said, if you really want to compare yourself, you have to compare yourself to someone of perfection, or what the Bible would call holy. So against the holy, righteous God who you've mocked, or who you haven't made a priority, or who you haven't made a priority at all, you, you quickly realize that you're not good. You, you, you quickly realize that the, the goodness that you portray, that the goodness that you, you, you think you have, it's not good at all. The Bible would call it as this, that even our righteousness is as filthy rags to the Lord. And that's Isaiah 64 for the people who are taking notes. So, with all this said, as believers, I personally believe it's important to grasp how God sees our sins, even what we would call the smallest of our sins. And to do that, you need not only to look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament or Furthermore, the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. So to do that, we're going to go to um, Leviticus chapter 4. 
And I was going to ask someone to read it, but I know I wouldn't get too many volunteers because Leviticus has some funny names, so I'll just read it myself. So if you lot say Amen, when you lot are there, <laughs> I know when to, to pick up. So that's Old Testament. So it's Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Pick it up from 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which, for his sin which he has committed, and he should lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. That's as far as I'm going to go. Now, personally, when I, when, I, when I tend to read the Bible, I tend to put myself in the situation. So I ask you today to, to put yourself in the situation. You've sinned against God and what the Bible would tell us to, to make atonement for your sin, you would have to do what? Bring an animal sacrifice, preferably a female goat or female lamb. And you would place your hand on the on the head of the lamb. And history tells us you would slit the animal's throat. So you put yourself in that situation. For the few minutes that the animal is still alive, the animal is probably screaming. Now I know most of you are, you know, you've been brought up in, what's it called? London. So I don't know if anyone of you has seen an animal die or if you've, you've, killed, you've killed the animal that you're, you're about to eat. But I was in my friend's house. Um, he's a Filipino. He went to the Philippines and basically... Um, there was about to make a dish. There was about to eat, um, on a, make some dish with a pig. And they slaughtered the pig. And they basically, they slit the pig's throat. And he, he recorded that. And the way the pig was screaming, the way it was squealing, like, I had to leave the room because I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. So the animal was probably screaming. There's probably, gush, there's probably blood gushing down towards your feet. Put yourself in that, in that situation. Do you know how disgusting, how vile that must have been for the person standing before their sin offering? Listen, that was, that was God illustrating, that was God portraying, that was God telling Israelites, this is, how my, this is how your sin looks to me. This is what your sin looks like. And if you can't fathom that, look towards the cross. Um, Isaiah 53, 3-5, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Have you paid attention to the cross? Have you paid attention to the cross? Christ is betrayed, he is mocked. He's slapped, he's spat upon, he's mocked, he's lashed, he's beaten, skin is peeling off his skin, flesh is ripped out of his back. Thorns are then placed on his head, nailed to the cross, and while nailed to the cross, more mockery, more insults are, are held at him while he's struggling to breathe for air. And then he's thrusted with a spear under his ribcage. What, what do you think that's all about? What do you think that's all about? It's about you, it's about your sin. That's how God sees your sin, and that's why I love how P.T. changed the lyrics of the bridge to the song, Here I Am to Worship, which initially was written like... I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And he changed the lyrics to, help me to know how much it costs 
to see my sin upon that cross. As Christians, I believe it's really important to see and know how God sees and views our sin. Listen, God doesn't, he doesn't delight in it. He, he doesn't tolerate it. It's not his nature. He hates it. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 7 says that God is angered by our sin and it gives reference to the Israelites in the creation of the golden calf. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 7 shows us that God feels grief towards it and this is in reference to when God looks at the wickedness of mankind and it says that God regretted making man. Romans 2, 1 through 6 shows us that he's storing up wrath towards sin. He hates it. And God being the just judge that he is should damn every single human being for it. Now think upon his grace and mercy. Now contemplate upon his grace and mercy. And, and that's the good news. Not that, not, 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 God, not that God damns, but he saves. He's, he's willing to save. That, that song that every Christian loves, Hillsong, Beautiful Exchange, what do you think they're singing about? The cross. The fact that repenting and, and believing and placing faith in Christ, understanding that Christ was crucified for your sin, that you get his righteousness, that his righteousness is imputed to you, and that you now live a life which is dead to sin. Sin is no longer your master, or what Romans sixteen fourteen tells us, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's the beautiful exchange, guys, that believing in Christ, you get his righteousness. That in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians 1, 7. So God is a just judge, but he's also a loving father. And what emphasizes his love is that there's so much wrath being deserved. Scripture tells us that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18:23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live. He desires all men to be saved. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and what? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you know what Micah said? Micah the prophet. In Micah chapter 7, 18 through 19, listen to this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, go back to our initial text of Ephesians 2, but this time let's pick up in, in verse 4. And it reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Praise God. When did he show us mercy? When we were dead in our trespasses. Let me show you a picture of his mercy. If you go to John chapter 8, I'm not, I'm not going to paraphrase today. I did a lot of that on Wednesday, but I actually want you to read it for yourself. So, John chapter 8, 
I'm going to pick it up from verse 2. And again, if you look, could say amen when you're there, so I know when to, to start. Picking it up in, in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to him, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you go and from now on sin no more so again put yourself in that story how is the woman feeling what's going through her head is she is she feeling some type of shame is she feeling scared she she thinks she's about to die and and when does christ show her mercy so again in ephesians 2 um picking up in 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, listen. God didn't just deliver us from sin. He, he, he brought us to a place. He saves us to himself. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. And you know why this is so awesome? In the book of Second Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is great news because, as I said initially, we know that we're f- we were in a fractured state. Sin was our nature. And it was our essence. And until our, our essence and nature can be changed, external and outward moral acts are going to be a problem. So Christ comes and he, he does what? He makes us a new creation. So I'm going to read Ephesians again, but I'm going to start from verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So God didn't just show us mercy, he showed us grace. So we're saved by grace through faith. And even the faith given is not ours, but it's God's to begin with. Why? So that no one may boast. Our justification, our salvation is not a result of our works. It's the gift of God. And one of the biggest problems with humanity is that we are 
idolaters or idolaters, however you want to pronounce that word. And the single person that tends to get first spot is, is not a celebrity or, or, or an artist. It usually is us. We're always about me, 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 me. Listen, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And I love Apostle Paul for highlighting this over and over again throughout Scripture because forgetting this cripples our walks with the Lord and it robs us of any joy that we have and it puts us under bondage again and we begin to walk in self-righteousness. And I'm going to show you that throughout Scripture. So for the people that did come on Wednesday, this is, this is where you're going to kind of hear the same message that I taught on, on Wednesday night. So if you can go to Galatians chapter 2 for me, please. I'm going to pick up in um, verse 15. And it says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is um, Apostle Paul talking to Peter. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not, own, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So scripture clearly teaches us that in order to be justified, you have to what? Believe in Christ. We have to believe in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law. So let me try and depict it in the way um, Paul was doing to Peter when he opposed him to his face. So he says in 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So we're the Gentile sinners, by the way. So Paul, Paul right here is saying that if there was ever a moral advantage, if there was ever a moral advantage towards salvation... The Jews had it. Um, the Jews had that moral advantage over the Gentiles. I explained. Listen, the, the Jews had the law. The Gentiles didn't. The, the Jews had the prophet, prophets. The Gentiles didn't. The Jews had the covenant. They had the promises. They had the signs. The Gentiles didn't have that. So if there was ever a moral advantage, we can agree that it belonged to the Jews. However, can you see Paul's argument? Okay, and? Who cares, Peter? He tells us in verse 16 that the law justifies no man. Paul tells Peter, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. They had the law from the beginning. It made no difference. Why? Because when it comes to justification, when it comes to standing right before God, any moral advantage received upon birth does not bring about your justification. It's the work of our sovereign Lord. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, Gentile or Jew, brought with a secular upbringing or born into a Christian family. To be moral is no advantage over the immoral. Both need a saviour. Neither one can justify himself. Neither one has the ability to save himself. And I'm strictly talking within the confines of justification. There are no advantages that equal salvation and we know this from scripture and we know this from each other's testimonies in this room there are no advantages that equal to salvation because we didn't do it it is the work of our sovereign lord 
And the good news is that he saves. He's willing to save. And I'll show you this through scripture. You don't need to turn there, but in the book of Acts 16, we, we know about a woman called Lydia. Um, I believe she was a seller of purple. So being a seller of purple, we know that she was very wealthy because purple at that time was very hard to get hold of. So let's, let's, just, let's just put it in our terms. Let's just say that she was, she was, she was the owner of, of Louis Vuitton or, or Fendi or Gucci. And what, what we see is that the Lord opened her heart. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. So when Paul was teaching the gospel, what happened? She got saved, she got baptized. And not only her, but her whole household. He saves, he's willing to save. Within the same chapter of Acts, we see, we see God saving the jailer when Paul and Silas are thrown into, into prison. And what happens? We see God move again. We see God save again. Saving this prison guard. And not only him, but the rest of his family as well. God is willing to save. On and on I can go, showing you through scripture how God is willing to save. How, how, how God converts. Look at Apostle Paul. Persecuting the church. He was on a mission, on a, on a horse with his, with his guys, ready to, ready to go kill the next bunch of Christians. And what happened? Boom! God knocked him off the horse. That was it. God is willing to save. He's willing to save. So, maybe you're here today and the, and the Holy Spirit's pressed in your heart. The Holy Spirit's convicted you and you feel a tug on your heart. You, he, he's made you aware of... He's made you... He's opened your eyes and now you're aware of your sin. And you're asking, can he save me too? How can I be saved? When Romans 10... 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and more than that, Jesus tells us to repent and believe. Repenting meaning a, a turning away from your sin. Or maybe you're here today and, and you already have this awesome gift of salvation. Well, I'll tell you what I told the other saints on Wednesday night. Do not neglect it. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And I was telling them what it meant in verse 2 where it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And I took them through the book of Deuteronomy to explain that. How they taught, um, the author of Hebrews was writing to Jewish Christians and he reminded them of the law. And he made that comparison between the law and Jesus and this great salvation. And he was saying, God gave us the Lord that we might have life and life abundantly. So if you, if you followed his commandments, you would have life and life abundantly. Now, hear me, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that if you follow, if you follow the Lord, you're, you're bound to have a Bentley and whatnot. I'm not saying that. And he was saying, if you don't follow his statutes, if you don't follow his ordinances, it's going to go bad for you. You're going to receive that just retribution or some versions might say just penalty or, or just punishment. And then he says, how should we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord. Meaning that this concept, this idea of salvation was God's idea. What we, went, what we, what we just went through, the, the cross, the Bible pointed out that we were dead in our trespasses and, and in sin and that we were by nature children of wrath. That God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. The cross, the death of his son making that possible. Or what Second Corinthians 5.21 would say, For our sake he, being our heavenly father, God the just judge, made him, being Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was all God's idea. This grace and mercy that I've been speaking about, that's all God's idea. So the writer of Hebrews says, How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't drift away. Why? Because this salvation is awesome. And furthermore, how are you going to escape? How are you going to escape the just retribution? How are you going to escape the just penalty, the just punishment? How are you going to escape if you neglect such an awesome gift of salvation? Why would you neglect this awesome gift of salvation? And that was the concern, that was the urgency the, the reader was portraying to, to the to the people in Hebrews, to the Jewish Christians. And that's my, my urgency to you lots, that we've seen how Christ has come and he, he's died on the cross and he offers you this, this grace and mercy. And I know this message is, is, is very heavy, but for you to see God's grace and mercy, you need to initially see the state and essence of man. Because if you don't do that, you rob him of worship and you don't really appreciate the grace and mercy and it robs you of the fullness of joy that you're truly supposed to walk in. Because once you realize that man is fretted and that he's evil and that there's so much wrath being deserved but God is loving, he's just but he's loving and he saved you. And that Jesus became your actual perfect sacrifice. You then worship him in spirit and in truth because you know his grace and mercy is so amazing. So you know me, I don't, I don't tend to go long because I, I, I preach the word and then I, I want us to have a time where we can respond to what we've heard in worship and in prayer. So as I, as I do call Jane and Kate out, I, I ask you to, to examine your heart, to, to see where you are. Have you received this gift of salvation? And, and if, you, if you have, are you, are, you, are you drifting away from it? Are you, are you neglecting it? Or if you haven't received this gift and salvation, you need to understand that our God saves, that he's, he's willing to save. So, Father, I just, I just thank you that you're rich in grace and mercy. I thank you for the robustness of the gospel, that you're both a just judge, but you're also a, a loving Father, Lord. Jesus, I thank you for being our, our sacrifice, our actual perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain, Father, Lord. I give you praise and I give you glory, Father, Lord, that you are loving, that you are willing to save, Lord. Father, I pray again for the congregation that you give them hearts of, hearts of flesh, Father, Lord, that's responsive to your gospel. And I know today's message wasn't as popular or as easy hearing as most people would want it to be, but, Father, we need to hear these things because it's, it's in your word, Lord. I pray that you really teach us the meaning of your grace and, and your mercy, Father, Lord. And as we respond in, in worship, as we respond in prayer, Holy Spirit, I pray that you, you truly convict us and you, and you lead us to the Father. That I wouldn't just 
lead the congregation in a, in a, in a prayer, but Father, there will, be, there will be true repentance in that the Holy Spirit will be convicting the hearts here, Lord, tonight. So I give you praise and I give you glory and I pray that we would have a, an amazing time in your presence, Father Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.